You're listening to WERA 96.7 FM, and this is Media on the Radio. Well, so part of what keeps you going in stand-up comedy is the delusion that you're great at it. Media on the Radio features stories from media professionals, everyone from journalists to filmmakers to marketing experts, to try and give an entree into the entire media field. Thanks for tuning in. This episode is with Nate Johnson. He's a stand-up comedian and has been for the last seven years, but also he's a lawyer. And the conversation gets into some interesting areas surrounding free speech and political correctness. Also, we both react to the incident in Berkeley surrounding Milo Yiannopoulos. I know people that I'm friends with who will just come out and say, oh, censoring speech is fine. The, the First Amendment is just about the government not censoring you. And we're totally entitled to try to silence you and deplatform you and just shut you down if we don't like your viewpoint. Also coming up, I'm doing a series on a co-working space called The Lookout, which is located in Adams Morgan, Washington, D.C. It's unique because most of the members are actually filmmakers. I talked to Ian Fay. For whatever reason, everybody just wants to work in their underwear. That's like the, the goal of working at home. It's like the end-all, be-all. I can just work in my underwear. But then you're in, at home in your underwear by yourself, and when you're in a creative industry, it's difficult to be able to have that momentum or that structure. And so over the next couple months, you're going to be hearing from a number of the folks that work at The Lookout and hear a bit more about The Lookout itself. I met you a while back, and I think it was before you ever tried stand-up, right? Um, no, I think it was right when I was starting. I remember that there was this, this one point where you just started going to stand open mic nights and doing stand-up and then I would catch up with you after months would go by and you said, yeah, I'm doing stand-up every single night of the week. Yeah. It's something I'd, I had always wanted to do. Like when I was really too young, my father showed me uh, Sam Kinison specials. And I remember just like laughing really hard and being like, oh, I want to make people laugh like that. So then I was always fascinated by it, but I never really had an opportunity to do it. But I moved to Arlington, and then I went to see a movie at the Boston Mall, and I walked past this, like, weird improv-slash-comedy club, and it had a sign-up that said, Open Mic Every Thursday Night. So when I saw that, I was like, all right, I'll give that a try. And I went, and I was so nervous, I parked and then threw up outside of my car, and then went to the open mic. It was like the most casual, low-key, low-stress open mic of all time. But I went up, did five minutes, uh, made people laugh. Probably not because the material was good, but just because I had this like nervous energy about me that was endearing. And uh, things kind of took off from there. And honestly, a lot of what drove me into doing stand-up even more was just the competitive nature of it. Like, I kept meeting comedians who, like, I would do it two nights a week, and they were doing it four, and I was like, well, they're not going to outmatch me. And then eventually I was doing it seven nights a week, sometimes two show, two or even three shows a night. When you, when you were doing two and three shows a night, did, was there a point where you reached, where you, you looked back and you said, well, I've gotten kind of good at 
Well, so part of what keeps you going in stand-up comedy is the delusion that you're great at it. So... <laughs> Very like my first set was actually very good and the host was like, well, that was the set of the night. And I think it, for him, it was just an offhand comment and kind of a joke. But for me, I, I like internalized that and was like, I had the best set of the night on my first time doing it. I'm a comedy like uh, wunderkind. So, <laughs> so that like inspired me to do it for years and I was so bad at the beginning. Like I had a sense for what was funny, but my, I mean, everybody's writing when they start is just terrible. So yeah, it's one of those things where you go and you don't really notice that you're getting better, but then you watch a tape from two years ago and you're like, oh my God, I was horrible. What was, what was it? Uh, some of the material that you were doing early on. Yeah. Ugh, I don't even want to say. I, I actually wrote a joke that um, I think Gabriel Iglesias had wrote where I talked about ordering so much food at the uh, at a KFC that I ordered two drinks because I didn't want the uh, attendant to know that I, it was all for me. And I and like and not original. I hadn't heard his joke, but it's something other people had thought of. And then just way too much sex, way too dirty. <laughs> I know, especially with, you know, because I'm a comedy nerd and I, I would never do it myself, but I've, I follow a lot of comedy, watch a lot of specials, listen to a lot of podcasts about comics um, or with comics. And so the, the idea of getting from a five minute set to a 10 minute set uh, all the way up to kind of an hour set is is kind of a feat and it's a journey. Um, can, can you talk about what that? was like and when you're developing material that that you find will actually work for and stretch for 20 minutes yeah so i guess what really happens it's not like you say i would say most people don't say okay i have to work to have a 10 minute set now what would happen is you would be doing five minute sets and then you would get booked on or i would get booked on a show where i would need to do 10 or 15 and then I'd be like, oh, my God, I've never done 10 minutes before. So I'd like look at all my jokes and be like, OK, how do I get 10 minutes of material out of this? And the same thing happened with 15 and 30. I think the longest that I've done was an hour. And that like preparing for that, I didn't need to write anything. But I just it was like taking an exam in college. I memorized uh, what the names of the jokes were and like I uh, tried to I wrote them down and like tried to get a photograph of the piece of paper in my mind so I knew what came next and that was the biggest challenge oh I also have a neurological disability from something that happened at birth and I had all these jokes about that and then I kind of sat down and said okay they kind of flow naturally in this way so then I had about a 12-minute set that was just about my disability. So that was a major breakthrough. Can you talk a little bit about that con that specific material? Um, and, and just kind of throw out maybe some of the jokes that, that you would... <laughs> yeah. I guess it can be hard to imagine. Uh, it was mostly stuff that happens to me in my life and just trying to make it funny. Like, one issue I had was... Um, or I still have, is my finger twitches, and I don't know why it does that, but it seems to happen a lot when I'm shaking people's hands. So I'd like go to shake somebody's hand and I'd scratch their palm with my twitchy finger, and then they'd look at me like, whoa, does this guy want to meet me in the bathroom? 
So I actually, it's been a couple of years since I've done that one. I don't remember the rest of it, but you get the gist. You you have a problem with your voice as well, so that you know every. It sounds like you're asking a girl out oh, every yeah. time you talk to them. My intro for like four years was. Uh, guys, don't worry. I'm not as nervous as I sound. I just always sound like I'm asking a girl out on a date. <laughs> so that was a really good opener, and it broke the ice. And that was actually, I was dating a comedian briefly, and she actually said that to me, and then that became my opener. Like, And it kind of hurt my feelings when she said it, but then I was like, okay, no, that's brilliant. And then I used it as my opener for four years. But moving past that, so you're doing a lot of kind of bi- uh, biography type material that's yeah. kind of from your own life. Back then, I definitely was in part because uh, being on stage still made me nervous, which just like tweaked up all of the disabled qualities I have. So it was more noticeable. And like for a long time, that was a disadvantage because people would kind of look at like, what's wrong with this one? But then I would get up there and because I addressed it, like the sets really hit because people were like, oh, he's saying what I was thinking about. And actually those jokes don't work as well as they used to because I've gotten more confident and people are like, uh, you don't sound like you're asking a girl out on a date now. So That makes sense. So where where is your material kind of got, gotten into? Yeah, that's a good question. Now it's just kind of, I guess it's still biographical. I found out that my ex-girlfriend is trans, so I I call, or I guess I should have said ex-boyfriend, excuse me, and I just have a joke where I talk about that, where I talk about this relationship with uh, he and him pronouns now, and how that's been awkward on uh, like Bumble dates when they're like, oh, what's what was your longest relationship? And I was like, oh, I dated my boyfriend for three years in college. And it's sort of like a whole labyrinth of, it's it's interesting. Who's on it's, first? Yeah, that's the, <laughs> <laughs> that's the first time I've called him my girlfriend since I found out. Because when he told me, he was like, could you please respect uh, this aspect of my life? And I do my best to do it. Wow, interesting. So in terms of that, that, uh, that gets kind of into an area where I want to take the conversation because... Um, a big part of kind of the comedy scene and, and the dialogue that happens surrounding it. Mm-hmm. And um, which I don't know if a lot of people know that because I think it's kind of comedian to comedian, yeah. the conversation that happens about mm-hmm. political correctness. And um, it's almost like them uh, comedians kind of fighting or combating the audience that, that yeah. were, you know, just kind of, how society is <laughs> is dealing with with concepts and language and things like that. Yeah. Do you have just a general opinion about political correctness? I I mean, so political correctness is a very vague term and everybody kind of has their own definition, but I would say I'm very against it overall. Um the issue is so I get I totally agree with not hurting people's feelings and at least on like a person-to-person level, not offending people. But when you're expressing ideas, and also I would say stand-up comedy is at its best when you're being sort of a moral detective, it's very hard not to step on toes when you're doing that. At least in the past like two years or so, my favorite piece of stand-up comedy has been Louis C.K.'s opening monologue on SNL 
when he talked about God and uh, pedophiles. And I know that people are probably like, whoa, pedophiles. But he talked about it, and it was mostly talking about how much pedophiles must be must like be sincere in their feelings because you get in so much trouble for being a pedophile and they still are pedophiles and like it's horrible but it's also funny and it's one of those things that makes you think and also his joke was sort of about questioning god or pointing out issues with religion and both of those things you know there are people who are like that offends me you shouldn't be talking about that but the comedy was excellent and I thought I think important. So part of the reason why I reached out to you to, to have this conversation is I was really kind of taken back by what you know, this is this is probably gonna come out not too recent <laughs> not too soon, but you know, the the few months back whenever Milo went to Berkeley. Oh yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> or a month back. Yeah. Um, when he came, went to Berkeley and the, the things that went down with that, it's really interesting because this kind of also plays into the whole narrative, you know, the snowflake narrative, the, the, the you know, the social justice, liberal yeah. kind of, and, and you can call what they call it is liberal fascism and things like that. <laughs> and it's a conversation yeah. that has been happening with comedians for years now. And, and do you think it's a, a society thing? Do you think it's a cultural thing? <laughs> I don't, it's hard to say that it's society at large, especially if a lot of us don't feel like we knew about it. Like comedians definitely know about it because at least 10 years ago, even one of the best ways to sort of boost your comedy career was to get a contract where you went to college campuses. And I guess that's still the case, but like what you can talk about as part of those tours or companies, whatever you want to call them is, is becoming more and more condensed and um, almost in a way where the kind of comedy you can do isn't the sort of interesting, isn't what makes stand-up comedy interesting. And uh, yeah, so what Milo Yiannopoulos has been doing, and I'm actually very familiar with him, I wouldn't say I'm a fan, but it's one of those things that I think is worth knowing about what's happening in our society. And basically, he's been going from campus to campus, invited usually by the college Republicans, and just giving a speech about an issue, not even that Republicans necessarily find valuable, but like attacking a sacred cow of the left. One thing I think he said is like, oh, he's attacked Black Lives Matter, like sort of the worst examples of conservatism. This is why I find this issue so so fascinating is that I ha- I'm of two minds about it. I I see it exactly both ways equally. So <laughs> so in one sense I see, you know, political correctness and people, you know, take take for example the stand-up comedian, right? Yeah. It, if a comedian is bad, <laughs> yeah, is their speech valuable? If it should be protected yeah. by the state, of course. The, but the, shouldn't this be shaken out by yeah. Supply and demand. The only thing I'll say here, I don't think that Milo sees himself as a comedian. Uh, Maybe you do, but I would think that Milo fans would be like, he's not a comedian. He's just like a a political philosopher, maybe, or a, um, I can't think of the word, not a catalyst, but a 
provocateur. Provocateur, yeah. Yeah. I would call him a performance <clears throat> artist, though. Okay, that's fair, too. Because I don't think he, you know, I think he's intentionally doing what he's doing, and he's yeah. got costume and everything else associated with it. <laughs> and I agree that there is bad comedy out there, and that that is a huge problem and especially at like bad open mics, like the open mic I used to go to in the mall was so horrible. And it had every example of bad comedy you can imagine. But on the other hand, the place that good comedy comes from is sort of testing it out ideas and seeing what works. So there does need to be room for going up and doing these rough jokes that aren't polished yet and might offend somebody or might have something that's bad. And if you go into a joke sort of with these ideas of like, this can be said, this cannot be said, this can be said, this cannot be said. I mean, do you ever get that Louis C.K. monologue on SNL? I don't think you could. And I mean, Louis is very good and he could probably like get close to there. But I know for a fact Louis C.K. has to go to clubs and work out his material. And that's, what, that's I guess, where I kind of land with it is that mid-range comedians that aren't doing that well and yeah. have some way that they, they're, not, they're not able to express themselves yeah. in the way that they want to. And it's not, it's not a matter of political correctness so much as they haven't, yeah. you know, they that's, haven't quite broke out yet. I just want to say uh, Devin's the one who said that. <laughs> Hey, I, I'm not in that world, so. Yeah. <laughs> and, that, and this is where it gets back to I, I see both both things at the same yeah. time. I, I think there is a piece of it where comedians can can pull that card and and say that's kind of a thing that they're fighting against. Um, when in reality, I think there is merit to you know having a space that yeah. you can say whatever you want. <laughs> um, getting back to then you know that freedom of speech, that idea of you know Milo kind of showing up on these university campuses. And violence, of course, is not the answer. But where does kind of freedom of speech get into? I know that there's certain certain types of speech that isn't protected and things like that. And and since you are a lawyer as well, I, yeah, I'd be interested to get your take <laughs> because I have a I have kind of and everybody does. Everybody mm-hmm. has their own kind yeah. of interpretation of the Constitution. Yeah. Um, and so and this is what we talked about before we were texting back and forth. Is it's not knowledge. It's it's an analysis that happens. Yeah. Um, and so with with these cases, you know, where freedom is limited in some way, it seems like society is limiting speech, not the government, right, in these cases. Yeah, I agree with that. And there are people, I mean, I've definitely, I know people that I'm friends with who will just come out and say, oh, censoring speech is fine. The the First Amendment is just about the government not censoring you, and we're totally entitled to try to silence you and deplatform you and just shut you down if we don't like your viewpoint. And I, I have to say, I think that's totally wrong. Honestly, I reviewed First Amendment jurisprudence coming into this, and there wasn't actually that much there that I thought was even relevant. From a First Amendment perspective, Milo should be able to go to any campus that invites him and give the speech and that if they don't like what he's saying, don't attend the speech. Like, that's where the law stands. And I support the right of folks to go and protest uh, peacefully, uh, but just go outside, you know, 
let your voice be heard. Tell people you don't approve of what's going on in there. But I thought I thought the Berkeley protests were horrible. I think that violence, especially, I mean, I've heard multiple people say Milo is insincere and a performance artist. I don't know if that's true. But if he is, why are you setting things on fire? It's just some bad... Because it's doing exactly what he wants you to do. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's the other thing. I feel like it totally plays into his hand. Yeah, I saw, it does. I saw some statistic like sales of his book or pre-orders went up like 1,300% following God. the Berkeley incident. So all that's happened is Milo's gotten millions of dollars of free publicity and he's going to benefit economically through book sales. And now I'm sure every college Republican is like, all right, we're going to bring this guy to our campus. And it's just like, ugh, it it couldn't have backfired worse. I think it is important, though, for people to, to understand, you know, the right of freedom of speech isn't the right in protection of consequences yeah. from that speech. So yeah. like Milo aside, an individual that owns a store or owns a business goes mm-hmm. out and says something and then people don't use their business anymore. Yeah. They can't sue those people for not doing their oh, business absolutely. with them anymore. Yeah. And I think that gets misconstrued um, that people should just be able to say whatever they want without repercussion. Yeah, absolutely. And that goes way too far. And I've seen people say, you know, violence and boycotts aren't the answer. Like, those are the same thing. And I was like, no, violence, totally unacceptable. Boycotts, perfectly fine. Like, I saw a thing where uh, people, I think this was maybe University of Michigan, where there was like a liquor store that had the Israeli flag in the window, and people threatened to boycott the store if they didn't take the Israeli flag down. Now, I don't agree with that position. Like, I mean, I think a lot of people have criticisms of Israel, but saying you can't even have a flag seems too far to me. But if you want to boycott something or take your business elsewhere, absolutely, perfectly fine. And that's the other thing. I see people criticize. They're like, oh, the social justice warriors on Twitter are going crazy. As long as they're just arguing against you, perfectly fine to do. Please argue. Now, on the other hand, please don't dox people. Doxing for anyone who doesn't know is sending out people's names, address, and phone number. And also don't threaten violence against people. And I will say one thing that's disappointing is the FBI doesn't follow up on that. So this is a problem for both sides of the aisle politically, where people will say like, oh, you're a Nazi. I'm going to punch you in the face. Or, oh, here's this feminist address. Go get her. And the FBI won't do anything about that. Mm. And there's probably too many cases with trolling online and everything. Yeah. And I mean, under the new administration, I'm not sure it's going to be prioritized. But that's a huge thing that needs to stop. Like just saying, well, there's so many people sending death threats on the Internet that we're not going to bother. Like we really do need an online arm that is enforcing the limits on speech that we've adopted. And from what I understand, there were approximately 1,500 people at the Berkeley protest and about 1,250 were peaceful. And it's a shame that that massive protest got totally swept aside by the violent people. And Mm -hmm. it's frustrating. The point is, buy Milo's book, right? (laughs) Buy Milo's book and burn it. Um, 
no, but I'm sure he would be happy with that because it'd be a sale. But um, I, we're getting running out of time a little bit. Okay, and and I don't. I'm, I feel like we've just scratched the surface. Honestly, I know, right? Getting back to kind of the stand-up idea. Yeah. Do you think it's like a pendulum? Do you think with with this type of political correctness and hyper hyper correction, I guess you could call it? Yeah. Do you think Do you think it swings back and forth and it's a pendulum? Maybe, and it's it'll be interesting to go from the Obama administration to the Trump administration. I mean, so far, it seems like people are being like, we need to be even more stringent in correcting people. But ultimately, I think we're better off just letting the stuff out there and not. I think worrying about comedy shows is one of the worst things you can worry about. And... It's also, I've had people say, like, one of the most common things they'll say is no jokes about sexual assault. And for a while, I was like, oh, that's good advice. We shouldn't be talking about sexual assault in comedy. But I've had people just on Facebook just post about sexual assault constantly. And then you look at something like Law and Order SVU, like, is still on the air two decades later. And then when... Like, I had a female friend that was in a book club, and, like, every book they were reading was about sexual assault of one variety or another. So it's clear that there is this appetite for this topic, and I think that comedy is its at its worst when it's ridiculing people that are victims of these things, but I think it's at its best when it's talking about these people trying to understand it. Like that Louis C.K. monologue, I was exploring like why why do we call people rapists and not rapers? Like every other criminal name ends in er, burglar, murderer, hitchhiker, etc. But then we have like rapists to sort of soften the blow of calling somebody like one of the worst things you can do to a person. It's just bizarre. And I think that exploring those kinds of ideas are actually incredibly valuable. And the other thing about college campuses is um, right at a time when people could not be plugged, could not be more plugged into the world of stand-up because of podcasts like Marin and Nerdist, et cetera, where we're telling college students, okay, there's this incredible rich world of stand-up and you're not prepared to be exposed to any of it. We're just going to bring in people who have been scrubbed down to PG and don't explore any of the important issues you're exploring in your classes. Like, yeah, there's definitely a disconnect there. And I don't, I don't think I should speak to why people are motivated to do it. But I do hope that we'll get away from it and become more comfortable exploring the important ideas in all venues and mediums. Awesome. Well, that's a great summary. Okay. Um, where can people find out more about Nate Johnson's comedy? <laughs> um, at StandUpNate on Twitter, Facebook.com slash StandUpNate. Uh, my old website is nategotbetter.com. It needs to be updated, but just follow me on Twitter or follow me on Facebook. Cool. Thanks, man. Bye. You can go to waitwhatpro.com to find past episodes of Media on the Radio. 
please subscribe on iTunes to Media on the Radio, where each week it'll send the podcast directly to your phone. You don't have to do anything. It'll just send it right to you. It's so easy. 